may be seated. So last week we began a Lenten sermon series entitled, We Interrupt This Program, and we began to take a look at various stories in the Bible and characters in the Bible whose lives were interrupted, and through it learned some things, not only about themselves, but of the good Lord. So today we take up that theme again as we read the first chapter of the book of Ruth, found in the Old Testament. Hear the word of God. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to live in the country of Moab, he and his wife and two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian, and they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And when they lived there about ten years, both Malin and Kilian also died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she started to return with her daughters-in-law from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had considered his people and had given them food. So she set out from the place where she had been living, she and her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to go back to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find security, each of you, in the house of your husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may come your husband's? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. Even if I thought there was hope for me, even if I should have a husband tonight and bear sons, would you then wait until they were grown? Would you then refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, it has been far more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has turned against me. And then they wept aloud again. Orba kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. So she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not press me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people and your God my God. And where you die, I will die. May the Lord do thus and so to me and more as well, even if death parts me from you. When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray that you will allow these words to come, to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name. Amen. No doubt you've heard the story of the old man named Morris and his wife Sadie. Morris is an old man in his final days in the hospital, and his wife Sadie is right there by his side. Morris looks up at Sadie and says to her, do you remember, Sadie, how when we were young and just married and we opened up that little shop in Kiev, but the Cossacks came and drove us out, but you were right there by my side? Oh, yes, said Sadie, I remember. Said Morris, and remember how we moved to Berlin and I opened up that little butcher shop, but the Nazis came and drove us out and you were right there by my side? Oh, of course, said Sadie, I remember. Said Morrison, then remember how we moved to the Bronx and we opened up that little dry goods place, but then the gangs came and drove us out and you were right there by my side. Oh, yes, yes, said Sadie, I remember. Said Morrison, then remember how we moved down to Miami and I had my heart attack and you were right there by my side. Oh, how could I forget, said Sadie. Sadie said, Morris, now that I'm close to the end of my life, there's something I've always wanted to say to you. What is it, dear Morris, said Sadie. Sadie said, Morris, I think you're a jinx. I suppose we all have a way of interpreting our lives. (laughs) When each of us looks back upon our days, chances are we see some of the same elements disguised in different ways. When we look back, we see some good and we see some bad. We see some success. We see some failure. We see some love. We see some hate. We see some friends. We see some enemies. We see joy. We see sadness. We see promises kept and promises broken. We see abundance and dearth. And I suppose our view of the path forward is somewhat defined by how we interpret the path behind us. How do we see the good times and how do we see the bad times? Who gets the credit and who gets the blame? Were the good times really all that good and were the bad times really all that bad? Was the interruption an annoying distraction from the charted course, or did the interruption suggest a whole new set of coordinates? In the dark days of World War II, London and its citizens were the target of what came to be called the Blitz, the harrowing months wherein the Nazis almost nightly showered the city with bombs that laid the city to rubble. Philip Yancey reports that 40 years later, when when they polled British senior citizens and asked them to look back upon their lives to recall what was the happiest time, to great surprise, 60% said the Blitz, the time when they lost everything. We all have a way of interpreting the story of our lives and our view of the past can affect our view of the future. And I suppose it's true not only how we view the past and how it shapes our future, but also how we view the present. How do we understand this present time? How do we understand the time at hand? What am I to learn about this particular moment of circumstance before me? How does my view of the present inform my view of the future? 
So tucked away inside the Old Testament is this interesting story of two women, Naomi and Ruth, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, which to many sounds like the start of a scary story. (laughs) And a scary story it is, but for different reasons. Because it's another one of those biblical stories of interruption. And the interruption of their lives comes through the form of uh, scarcity. The circumstances of life have turned against them sharply. Famine has parched the land. Home must be left behind. Refugee status strips their identity. Those they love have been taken away. And with no security, they are left to fend for themselves with no land, no home, no status, no husbands. In all measurable terms, especially in an ancient paternal culture, they are worth nothing. The best they can do is beg, the best they can do is wander, the best they can do is run. The best they can do is even split up every woman out for herself. Now it's Mother Naomi who, when she looks at the circumstances of scarcity, she internalizes them. The scarcity around her becomes the scarcity within her. She isn't worth much out there, so... She can't be worth much in here. She's not good for anything. She turns to her daughters-in-law and she tells them that the only decent thing that she could ever do for them was to give them husbands, but the biological clock is long past midnight, so that's not going to work. She ain't worth nothing. She even changes her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, which means bitter. The scarcity around her has become the scarcity within her. So when she makes ready to exit stage left out of the story and into the oblivion of her bitterness, it is Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who sees something in Naomi that she is unable to see. She sees still a person. She sees still a relation. She sees still a partner And she sees now a beginning. Where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And the two lock arms and they turn their faces toward the uncertain future. And the interruption of scarcity becomes for them the beginning of their discovery of worth. We ain't got much, but we got each other. We may not have land or home or status or food, but now we have each other. And there's something in me that you need, and there's something in you that I need. And maybe that's enough for both of us to see that we're worth something, even when the circumstances suggest that we're not worth anything. Sometimes you have to lose everything in order to find the something that has always been there. On this St. Patrick's Day, you remember the story told by Frank McCourt, who turned his life story into a memoir, Angela's Ashes. Perhaps you read it some 20 years ago. 
It won the Pulitzer Prize. McCourt's first book at age 66 won the Pulitzer Prize, and rightly so, because it's the story, this gripping story, of McCourt's Irish childhood of scarcity. Drunkenness of his father, the ensuing poverty of his family, domestic abuse, the death of three siblings, and the eked-out survival of his mother. The story of heartache that sends Frank packing from Ireland to New York City, where eventually he becomes a high school English teacher and then later an award-winning author. The story of Phoenix and Triumph all the way up to the top of the bestseller list. So in the wake of his award, McCourt was asked to return to the high school where he had taught for scores of years, and they asked him what he most learned in writing his story. And the old Irishman said, I learned the significance of my own insignificant life. I learned the significance of my own insignificant life. The world has its cruel way of convincing us of our insignificance and to force the question, what are you worth when maybe everybody else thinks you're not worth anything? How does the scarcity around you keep from being the scarcity inside of you? What gain can there be from such loss? Oscar Wilde, the great Irish poet, when faced with the destitution of public shame and the loss of his lover, wrote, where there is sorrow, there is holy ground. Someday people will realize what that means and they will know nothing of life till they do. So Charlie Brown stands on the holy ground of his sad pitcher's mound, tossing home run after home run after home run, enduring loss after loss after loss, because, because life can be that way. But we love Charlie Brown because we understand that he's one of us, a human soul trying to find himself trying to make his way, and tomorrow he'll be back on the mound with hope. It makes me think of a story I read a while ago about a guy named Eddie Lucas. 12-year-old Eddie Lucas, back in the 1950s, was a huge baseball fan, and in particular, a huge New York Giants baseball fan. He came by it honestly. His father lived and died with the Giants. And he can remember as if it were yesterday, sitting next to his father and listening to the last game of the National League Championship Series in 1951, when Bobby Thompson of the Giants hit the shot heard round the world, a walk-off home run that gave the Giants the pennant. So excited was young Eddie that he grabbed his glove, ran down the street to get up a pickup game of baseball to celebrate. And in that pickup game, with young Eddie pitching, echoes of Thompson's home run still ringing in the air, a line drive shot back at Eddie hit him between the eyes, detached both of his retinas, and left him blind for life. Abundance, scarcity, in the excuse the phrase, blink of an eye. Where to now? Determined not to let her little boy be defined by the scarcity of sight, Eddie's mother heard about the appearance of some Yankee players at the local store, so she marched him down to meet them. The greatest baseball fan meets the greatest baseball players, at least if you're from New York. It was Yankee shortstop Phil Rizzuto, whose hurdle had always been his height, 
who took an instant liking to young Eddie, invited him to the Yankee locker room, and it wasn't long before the Yankees adopted him as one of their family, allowed him to live out his passion for baseball, allowed he and his wife to be the only couple to be married at home plate at Yankee Stadium. And long story short, Eddie became one of the first and one of the few blind baseball writers. How does a blind person write about baseball? You'll have to ask Eddie. He now heads up the Ed Lucas Foundation that supports children with disabilities in achieving their dreams. Says Eddie, baseball took my sight, but it gave me my life. What are you worth when nobody thinks you're worth anything? How does the scarcity around you keep from being the scarcity within you? Sometimes it's the interruption that is just the beginning. And it can be the beginning, I suppose, when you and I realize that the great stories of life often begin not with abundance, but with scarcity. The great drama of the Bible itself is filled with these lives of scarcity. Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. Abraham sent to his new home, by, sent from his home to a new land. Sarah, barren in her womb. Job loses everything. Jonah inside the belly of the whale. The woman convicted of adultery, cowering before her bloodthirsty accusers. Paul, Saul, blind on the road to Damascus with scarcity, comes beginning. With scarcity comes the discovery that we are not defined by what we have or don't have, but by who we are and whose we are. And little by little, we find what we need to chart a new course. I love that line in John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, the harrowing tale of the Jode family and their effort to survive the Great Depression and escape the devastating Dust Bowl. The matriarch of the family, Ma Jode, is, sees it as her mission to hold the family together and to not let them dwell on what they do not have, but instead on what they do have. And Steinbeck writes, it was her habit to build up laughter out of inadequate material. It was her habit to build up laughter out of inadequate material keeping the scarcity around you from being the scarcity within you. Malcolm Muggridge, the great essayist and late convert to the faith, when he reached the end of his life and looked back, had this to say, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on the experiences that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful. I look back on those experiences with particular satisfaction Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in the world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my experience has been through affliction and not through happiness. So it makes all the sense in the world that in the beginning days of spring, the people of God begin their story with the growing scarcity of Jesus' journey to the cross. And in Jesus' journey comes loss of control, loss of friends, loss of reputation, loss of liberty, loss even of life. It's where 
Most good stories begin when the scarcity around you forces you to find the abundance within you, if only in the presence of God, if only in the presence of partner, if only in the inadequate material with which to start building. Do not press me to leave you, says daughter-in-law Ruth to mother-in-law Naomi, or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. And so the two partners go to begin a new beginning. And at the end of the story, the storyteller tells us that they found their way finally to food and family. And Ruth conceives and bears a son. And scripture says, Grandmother Naomi took the child and laid, her, laid him in her bosom and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And the boy became the father of Jesse and Jesse, the father of Israel's greatest king, sometimes it is the interruption that is just the beginning.